Hello, friends. Welcome to the ATC Double Cut. In this episode, I am joined by the golf course superintendent at Hazeltine National Golf Club, Chris Tridabaugh. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me, Micah. Good to good to be back. I, I think we've uh, we we haven't done an episode in a little while, at least the golf the length of the golf season. So it's nice to be back into sort of uh, writing and podcasting season for me. I'm currently working on my budget here at work, but that's uh, once that hurdle is is cleared and the golf course is closed, then I will have lots of time to do uh, some nice writing and um, some some more podcasting. I, I'm I'm planning a, uh, I'm thinking about a season two of my own podcast and happy to be a part of, uh, um, of yours again. Yeah. Thank you. You, you are a repeat guest and I am, uh, I'm glad we have a chance to talk and we're talking about something today in this, this being an ATC double cut episode we use as a starting point for our discussion. We're going to talk about one of the ATC blog posts and we're going to talk about one that. I think is it's almost like I I won't use the word critical but important and and uh it's something it's like low-hanging fruit I think it's something that a lot of people could get value from but there's not a lot of people doing it but Mm -hmm. you are and and this is the bobble test or basically daily assessment of of play playing conditions so I want to talk about that a little bit and talk about why I did drop the word critical and why I, I say important and why you take the time to do it. I want us to talk through that and use this particular um, blog post. I'm bringing it up on the screen now. It's uh, got a title of Bobble Test Rating Scale, which is not that exciting. Not so many people have clicked through to read it, but w- you and I are going to make our best effort or, or I'm going to make my best effort to explain why it's interesting and exciting. And I hope you can give some practical, real-world uh, um, comments uh, yeah. about what what you're doing. Because, what because and why? Yeah, because even I posted this on the ATC Discord, which is uh, you know has has some people that that uh, chat about things there. And of course, nobody answered it. It's like I asked, "Is anybody doing this besides me and Chris?" And nobody, nobody answered it. And crickets. Yeah, crickets. And I know, like, uh, I don't really know a lot of people that are making use of the bobble test, but I am. I've been doing it since 2019, um, and I find it really useful. So uh, let's mm-hmm. let's uh, let's discuss this blog post a little bit. And then branch out into uh, some implications of making these kind of measurements, if we if we can. Perfect. So um, let's see. Uh, of course, I'll put a direct link to this blog post in the in the show notes. And again, the title is Bobble Test Rating Scale. Maybe uh, why don't why don't you explain what the Bobble Test is? Can can you say what it is? Yeah. Well, um, one, I, I, you know, for anybody listening, hopefully they have read your blog post because I think it's a fantastic sort of introduction to it or a description of, of how to do this test. But what it is, is it's a, I mean, I suppose one might call it a, a bit of a subjective test, right? I mean, could a person say that it's subjective? I think I, yeah. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna overstate yeah. 
uh, yep. the objectivity of it. But this blog okay. post, this blog post is meant to say that it's it's more objective than people think. So if people just so, throw it away and say they're not yeah. going to do it because it's subjective, yeah. I want them to rethink yep. that. And let me okay. Let, then let me. I, I will start over. So, uh, um, starting from the beginning, this is a test that seems very subjective when you first hear about it, and I imagine many people sort of toss it to the side and think that it it isn't valuable or wouldn't be valuable because of that supposed subjectivity. But what I have found is that very quickly this becomes uh, something which is is very objective and and can your your eye in doing the test will quickly um, become calibrated to the chart that you put in your post Micah and then what will also happen is if you do this test so let's say a person says well I don't do <clears throat> the stimping at my golf course all the time so I need to have other people doing the test like this and it's just not possible but if you were to say take two or three or four people and you all go to a green together and you roll balls off the stint meter and you and you in your own mind say you rate it and then you kind of call it out loud and you you will all quickly calibrate your eye towards the same thing so i'm very comfortable when my assistants stimp and do a bobble test rating that they are getting the same kind of um, rating that, that I would get generally. Um, and I think your chart describes it very well. Um, you know, it, it, it lists, it makes it objective because basically there are things that can happen to that ball as it rolls across the ground that, that basically dictate the score that, that you can get. And it's a wonderful um, complement to other playing condition data points or, you know, uh, daily um, stint meter uh, smoothness. And then, you know, as we get into like longer term sort of uh, data points that we've talked about before, this, this is a complement to that. And um, I think a very important one. So let's, so, okay. So the bobble test is, uh, we're we're rolling a ball and and giving it a subjective measurement that I'd like to say is perhaps more objective than you think, um, yep. because because there's only so many motions that a particular ball can make, and on right. on professionally managed golf course putting surfaces that it's really limited to what the deviations are, and yep. the, and so your eye catches it. And anybody who does this for a living, their eye catches it and they catch the same things. And oh, yeah. by the way, this is also what golf players are catching and noticing as they hit a putt and, and they're yeah. watching the ball track towards the hole. So it turns out to be something that's that's interesting and useful to measure. So we're going to get to that table and, and exactly what some of the rankings are at the uh or what scores you would give to a, a ball at the top end of the scale. But let's just step back a little bit and say, okay, we've jumped into like what the bobble test is. Can mm -hmm. and really the let's give an overview, maybe you and me in our own words about why would we even bother doing this? Because we're gonna we'll circle back to this right uh, after we talk about the bobble test specifically. But it's yeah. like. Uh, I didn't start doing this till 2019. 
you didn't start doing this until 2020 or 2021. And of course, we were always assessing quality, but we never put a score to it. And why, why now do you put a score to it? And why? Yeah, I, I know I will explain why I do, but I'd like to hear your justification for this. Why are we even talking right. about this? So before we get to that, I did have one sort of um, one um, comparison that that came to my mind of the the sort of subjectivity of this and how can that work and you know for those certainly Americans and and um, and Japanese viewers um, who are baseball fans uh, I think the uh, a, a home plate umpire calling balls and strikes is a very good example of the kind of calibration that your eye gets for this sort of thing. You know, as we watch TV, watch on TV baseball games, you have the, the box that shows the strike zone. And certainly um, the umpires will make mistakes or will call balls that are, you know, outside of that box of strike or inside a ball on occasion. But for the most part, they get it exactly right. And that's just from having seen this over and over and over again. So um, I think that's a good sort of example from, you know, maybe the um, – sporting world of of how your eye can become calibrated to a certain um parameter let's say so um the, you know the reason i i got to you you had been talking about this test and you'd been doing it for a while as as with most of the things that i do it, you they they come from come from yourself and you'll say hey i've i've developed this test or I've come up with this test or I've thought about this test and I think it can be really valuable and you'll mention it to me and it, sometimes it takes me a little while to sort of gain the context on on why it would be important and how it would be useful to our operation but eventually uh, I typically have done that and then I find these things to be very useful and so just a little bit of background um, I, I've talked about it a little bit before but you know Hazeltine is a, a major championship hosting venue um, just just our in our next uh, six years, we're going to host the U.S. Amateur next year in 2024, the Women's PGA Championship in 2026, and then we're going to have the Ryder Cup again in 2029. So we have a membership of, of very high-level um, accomplished golfers who have a, a real standard in mind when they come to – when they join the club. And we have um, tournaments – in June, July, basically every month of the, the golf season, June, July, August, and September, in which the expectation is sort of major championship condition. And then in between those tournaments, those ex that expectation, expectation exists on a daily basis for, you know, guest play and just regular member play. I mean, that is what they expect. And they expect that the, the, the level of conditioning that they get during those tournament events um, will be the same day to day in between the tournaments. And so the bobble test doesn't necessarily help achieve those conditions, but what it does is it tells me if we're able to maintain and manage those conditions with the types of things that we're doing to the golf course um, on a daily basis. And so as we think about, and Michael, you and I have talked a lot about, and we've got other um, podcasts in which we've talked about the type of um, sort of non-disruptive maintenance we're doing here at Hazeltine, I think a concern that many listeners or, or people who maybe aren't, are doing more disruptive maintenance, their concern would be that 
I have to do this maintenance to keep the playing conditions at a certain level. And certainly there will be some kind of drop, but that's acceptable because then we can maintain at a high level for, you know, X amount of days because we did this disruptive event. And what I've come to the conclusion um, with your help and with my own um, sort of observations and work here is that we don't have to do all this disruptive maintenance. We can just start the season and we can have perfect conditioning all the way through without Monday maintenance events, um, vertical mowing, regular top dressing, uh, you know, regular tining of greens, that sort of thing. And what this test, the bobble test, is sh is showing and proving, is that um, th that that is that is true that we are going through the season maintaining that high level of of conditioning, and um, and we're not seeing it drop because we're X number of days away from a top dressing or some kind of disruptive event, and we're seeing stability in in our green speed and our bobble test, and and that to me is telling me that this this um, approach is working. Excellent. Thank you so much for that thorough explanation. And I will just add in my words, or my way of thinking about this. And, and if you're listening, and you're, you're managing sports turf, or you're managing lawns, just uh, bear with me. Uh, imagine that you're making measurements that are an assessment of the lawn is meeting the performance standard, the the way that you want it to perform, the way you want it to look. And if it's sports turf, for whatever sport you are preparing a surface for, just substitute in the type of measurements that you would make to assess whether you're meeting the standard that you're trying to achieve or not. And after that disclaimer, please allow me to just use examples that are specific to golf and specifically uh, for putting greens for this particular topic. So we're looking at how a golf ball rolls across the surface, which is really on putting greens, that's kind of what we're trying to achieve. And I get so many questions with some of the consulting work I do about how often should I be verticutting? You know, people will just ask these questions out of the blue. They're, they're not anchored to anything of like, mm -hmm. should I be verticutting every week or do you think it's better to do every two weeks? Or they'll say like, I heard like some people are, are really cutting back on the verticutting. They aren't vertic, you know, they're only verticutting two or three times a year or something. And then they ask me, what do I think about that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, how am I supposed to answer it? I, I can, I can tell you like the textbook kind of stuff of like, well, it would be kind of normal to, you know, I'll, I'll go somewhere in between and say, okay, well, typically, yeah, do a light verticut every couple of weeks, right? But is that what's going to be best for their playing surfaces? I, I don't know. I mean, sometimes you need to do more. I have one client yeah. that uh, I'm preparing a report for that I'm recommending that they're going to do more frequent verticutting and a little bit more intensive verticutting. But the, the main thing is let's measure the conditions that are being produced. So for playability... Mm -hmm. I like to measure green speed and firmness. And I, I've measured on, on putting greens. I, I've been measuring green speed and firmness back uh, for more than a decade and, and recommending that as useful measurements. And I assumed that simply measuring green speed was enough because 
I assume that if you have a, a fairly good green speed or ball roll distance, so you measure that with a stint meter, you measure the ball roll distance with the stint meter, and we call that the green speed. I assume that if you have a, 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 a long roll, that the ball must be rolling pretty well along that line. Mm-hmm. And then I started noticing sometimes that the ball was rolling a good distance, but it wasn't tracking quite the way that I thought that it should. And and I tried various other uh, methods. I've got a video about this uh, where I describe some of the other ways that you can measure the smoothness and trueness of ball roll. Um, and and I, I didn't invent the bobble test. This is a, a long time test that uh, was either invented in New Zealand or in the UK, as far as I know. I think I, I had an idea today to talk to some of the people who I think may know where this actually came from and, and get their story on it. But it's it's been around for over 20 years, and who knows, maybe it's maybe it's way older than that. So I've been aware of it, but I never realized that we should do it until finally in 2019, I was measuring at a particular golf course. I can still remember uh, where it was, and I can still remember the green speed that I was measuring, which I thought was pretty good, and they were quite pleased at that course with the green speed but the ball roll was completely unsatisfactory. The mm-hmm. The ball was chattering and it was snaking continuously through the roll. And although it was rolling a good distance, that isn't how a golf ball on a putting green should roll at a, at a high-end facility with intensive maintenance. And so I'm, I'm meandering around a bit, but basically I added that to the... Uh, at that time, I decided I need to add this to the set of of playability measurements that I'm making. So green speed, firmness, and bauble test. So now we have a complete suite of measurements that are telling us how far the ball's rolling, what the quality of the ball roll is, and what the firmness is. And, um, and so I, I just think to go back to the maintenance work to make this very practical, we can decide... So if we have un if we have satisfactory conditions then I recommend keep doing what you're doing. If you have unsatisfactory conditions, you can then take steps to improve the conditions and you can use the changes in the test that in the the, the changes in the measurements that you make, you can use those to tell if the work that you've changed is is having the desired result. And then you can then calibrate how much verticutting you may do for your particular grass in a particular season, given the weather that you had this year, and so on and 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 so forth. So, to me, it it just seems like why would I why would I change top dressing or why would I change verticutting if I'm not measuring what the results are that it has on the grass? Once you start think, once you start measuring this, it seems essential maybe essential is a better word than critical which i used mm-hmm. earlier but it, uh, to me it it it's something that i i really struggle to make textbook recommendations because i've always said like if you if you just follow the textbook you can get mediocre conditions but there's not very many greenkeepers out there golf course superintendents out there who who are 
striving to achieve mediocre conditions or produce mediocre conditions. Everybody, whether they're at a high-budget club or a low-budget club tournament course or not a tournament course, they're trying to do the absolute best that they can. And I think that by measuring what you're actually producing, and it doesn't take too much time, it can be transformative in the in the way that you think about the work. And that's, it, it has been for me also, because this is not the type of lecture or soliloquy I would have made in 2009. You know, I, I, I wasn't so into this kind of stuff back in 2009. Well, you know, and just to sort of, you know, some may, may feel like, well, this is just, uh, you know, Chris and, and Micah trying to prove that they, you, you don't want to do all this, all kinds of work, but, you know, I think that an example, and this is sort of, I guess, theoretical. It's not not an, uh, you know, an example that I have that comes from my own experience. But, you know, we've all sort of watched PGA Tour events during the winter months that take place on the west coast of the United States, where greens tend to be predominantly POA, and you know, golfers are oftentimes critical. Although I think some of that's, I think superintendents and greenkeepers have gotten better. So I think some of that criticism has gone away, but we've, we all can remember hearing that and golfers talk about the ball bouncing across um, POA greens that are seeding, or they refer to it as cauliflower, or they talk about the, 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 the grass blooming over the course of the day. And then it gets bumpier, all this stuff that we kind of know is like golfer speak. Um, but you know, I, I could imagine a, a person who is managing greens in that type of situation to say, okay, I want to try something different this year and see if I can improve that, that winter ball roll. And they do something and they're, and they, they think, well, it might be better. It might not. But if you're doing a test like this, if you're taking this test and then you're judging the, the things that you did, the change that you made and you, you look at it year over year, you can, you can will very quickly be able to t determine if the, the practices you're doing or the, the change you have made is, is having a positive impact on, on ball roll or not. Um, so this isn't just about um, doing, as Micah said, nothing or minimal. I mean, that's, that's what it is for me at this, at our facility. But as, as Micah said, it, it may be at other facilities, um, it may be about proving the worth or or non-worth of of practices that are being put into place to improve the improve the um the surfaces yeah ab absolutely because there's a lot of places that need to put more sand or they need to verticut more or they need to double cut more or they need to circle cut or they they need to uh aerify or they need to improve drainage or they they need to remove uh, trees that are causing shade problems and stuff like that, right? If mm -hmm. you have these kind of data, then you can say, look, the reason why we're not achieving the results is because we haven't been able to do these maintenance practices that are essential, or we haven't been able to do enough of them, or we need more maintenance Mondays, or, or we need to verticut every Monday for eight weeks in a row. And, and get more grass off of these greens so it smooths out. And we need to top dress mm -hmm. four times pretty heavy during that period. These kind of data, um, so it's not only the bobble test, but the bobble test to me is a key component of it, together with the green speed, together with the firmness assessment, that 
and and I'm always assuming that we have a hundred percent grass cover. So you know, it's that just kind of goes without saying. I've, I've mentioned it before, but if we don't have a hundred percent grass cover, I'd like to work on that first and then start worrying about the playability. So mm-hmm. it's assuming that we have a hundred percent grass cover. Now we're trying to have the playability as good as it can be, and I think that these kind of data can also be used to justify doing more work. And and it's the same thing that I hope you'll join me uh, and we'll do our year in review uh, looking at your soil test results in your OM246 on an ATC office hours uh, in in a month or so when we when we have some results and have a bit more time. And we can discuss that. But really with the OM246, I'm changing subjects a little bit, but when you're mm-hmm. measuring the total organic material and now looking at some of the sand fractions that we're looking at to see the particle sizes of the the materials right at the the surface of a green, looking at how that changes over time to me is a wonderful way to either to tell it, that that doing less is, is working or... Um, to make a strong argument of this is not working. We need to do more. We, you know, we're going in the wrong direction, but but it needs to be coupled with the playability measurement. And that's why, you know, I sometimes say not anchored or untethered or, or, or coupled or uncoupled. And what I mean is we, we, and, and that's why, yeah, I'll, I'll say it. I don't like the word agronomy. Uh, as it relates to greenkeeping. Now, if you're an agronomist or you're in an agronomy center, or if you're a, a running a, a an agronomy department or or whatever, if that's your job title and that's what the sign says and the name card and everything, that's cool. I'm, I don't mean to criticize that, but I, I think that the the thinking that we have should be more of a greenkeeping type of thinking where we're coupling where we're linking together the agronomic work that gets done. So the agronomic part is about growing grass, managing soil. But if we only do that and, and, and we don't measure what the results are, uh, I don't think we can do the job as, as good as we can. Well, and I, I used to, I used to be someone who thought that, you know, disruptive maintenance had to take place at some point leading up to an event. I I can remember where uh, my approach, I talked about how we have uh, our big club events at at the end of June, end of July, end of August, and then kind of mid to end of September. And so my approach for a long time was that I would do the work at the beginning of those months that I thought we needed to do to get the greens in the best condition at the end end of the month. And um, you know what this what this test and and um, and again linking it putting it together with green speed has told me like it, that just isn't necessary. We can just be good at the beginning of the month, in the middle of the month, at the end of the month, and then rather than have to um, give the greens a spa day. That's a, a term I think we've maybe seen part of the, the Twitter, the turf Twitter verse, um, you know, because we just had an, a big event. Um, we don't need to do that. Um, yeah, sure. We might skip a day of mowing or something of that nature, but generally, you know, we can come out the Monday after one of our big events and 
I can feel quite confident that we don't need to do some kind of um, maintenance event to the greens to make sure that they're ready for the next event. They just are ready and they are good and they continue to be good day after day after day. And the practices that we're putting into place and the approach that we're taking um, thus far, really over the course of now, well, at least three seasons has, has not caused any sort of detrimental effect to the, the playing conditions. In fact, they, I think they just keep getting better and better and more and more consistent. Um, you know, and, and, um, that that's a pretty good indicator of, of things going well. I mean, go, golfer commentary is, is, uh, is another sort of subjective type of thing, but our golfers are very happy with the consistency that we provide. And, and, um, you know, we, will you all know everyone listening will know that when conditions slip or when they aren't as, as good as they maybe should be that golfers will certainly comment on that and um, you know we, we don't hear those kind of comments that's awesome you and your team must have had a good year and uh, be enjoying the autumn uh, we, we did it, you know it was a it, for the second almost I guess for sure the second but but kind of the third straight year we had a, a pretty dry year um, quite a bit of drought actually. Um, most of Minnesota was in in pretty severe drought according to the the drought monitor. And, um, you know, I think that can make for quite good golfing conditions, um, but it does get tiring to have to think about irrigation every day. And uh, we certainly have areas on the golf course that aren't covered uh, as well as we'd like irrigation. So, but then in the last um, month or um, yeah, it's been about a month. We've had 10 inches of rain, so, uh, everything is quite, um, quite green and, and, uh, I might use the word lush again, but, uh, uh, but you know, the playing conditions continue to be good. And, and I, that's another example that I would give is that we maintain really great playing conditions throughout various weather events. So when the course is dry and we're irrigating by hand and we're, you know, using overhead irrigation, the course will be very consistent. And then when we get into wet periods, you know, there, there is some, obviously some um, amount of change in the conditioning that comes with that, but we quite quickly sort of, you know, if you imagine a boat that's, that's wobbly and you, you push on one end of a, a, you know, a kid's toy boat and it wobbles, you know, how quickly does it sort of, you know, our, our surfaces come back to sort of the, the norm quite quickly after, you know, a big rain event or something like that. So, um, you know, again, uh, it's just, it's just more proof that I think what we're doing is, is working and the approach we're taking is working and it's satisf satisfying the people who play golf out here and it's making life, not that, not that this is all about making our life as turf managers easier, but certainly if we can make that aspect of things easier, then it allows us to concentrate on other things that, uh, you know, can provide a better experience in different areas. Chris, thank you. I'm going to bring up now the the blog post again. I've been showing on the for the those watching on video, I I've been showing just Chris and I. I'm going to bring the the uh that blog post back up and show uh that picture of me stimping. Uh that was at the uh 2023 KBC Augusta tournament. I'm rolling a ball down a ramp and when I roll the ball down the ramp, I uh, am making a stint meter measurement, but I also watch how the ball rolls and I perform the bobble test. I want to talk a little bit about 
how this actually works because during the 2023 I, let me let me interrupt Micah. i i think you're showing the picture that i commented on the other day and i noticed when i first looked at that picture i thought what is does he have a light or something strapped to his pant leg in that picture and then i looked at it carefully and i noticed it's a very industrial looking dragonfly wow yeah so i'm i'm just bringing this up to full size now so anybody watching can uh, see that there's a, a dragonfly very prominently attached to the my left pants leg and uh yeah so did you have a question about that or you well, don't wear, I, I you don't wear insect brooches that... or what <laughs> that's probably <laughs> a dragon i think in the in the united states i think a lot of people wear um dragonfly like a, a brooch or something with a dragonfly and it's it's meant to um bring good i don't know if it's good karma or good um um good vibes or you know that kind of thing it's it's meant to be a good uh, a positive sort of thing and um i wondered if that was a you know if you had strapped that dragonfly to your leg for that purpose or if it was just uh you know uh, well, live dragonfly who decided that that was a good place to rest. You know, I, I, I thought that I, thank you for asking the question. I'm shocked. Uh, well, I mean, I'm glad that you've, you noticed and, and thank you for noticing. And I'm, and then thank you for mentioning this. So I have a chance to explain myself because I actually prepared some remarks about this that I was going to deliver somehow in August at the time when I first acquired one of these and first started wearing one of these dragonflies. Uh, and so Andrew McDaniel and I had some fun at the KBC Augusta tournament, shared a few photos. Uh, the, the dragonfly was uh, on Andrew's cap one time on a YouTube video. And there were just various places where we shared the image or the video of it. And you are the first person now to outside of Japan who has remarked on it. So this is my first chance to explain. So here we go. Uh, the dragonfly, uh, as insects go, it is an apex predator. Okay? So in the air, in the skies, the dragonfly is an apex predator. When I am out there stimping, when I'm out there performing the bobble test... I cannot be flinching. I have to be still. I can't be, you know, wobbling around, moving my arms, swatting horse flies away, you know, trying to, mm. to, 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 uh, you know, scare mosquitoes away or, or anything like that. So the dragonfly being an apex predator, it will trigger a fight or flight response in other insects. So that's, that's the concept. And a lot of caddies in Japan are wearing these. Um, it'll scare horse flies away. That's, that's the idea. And so the, uh, the golf course mechanic, uh, the equipment manager at Kea Golf Club had an extra one that he gave me uh, at the start of the week. And so I started wearing that to remove, you know, to keep mosquitoes away. And I will tell you, I was not... Uh, I was not bitten by a single mosquito all week, which is remarkable. Oh my gosh. And in fact, you know, it, it doesn't just trigger a fight or flight 
response in insects. I scared myself a couple times when, when you know, I bumped my leg against a workman tire where the insect was had been pinned on my leg, and I was like, and then I looked down and see the dragonflies. Like, oh no, what's that? And 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 flinched. So it, it is a bit of fun. Now, also, I, I should say this is reminding me of something. Okay. Um, you know, when you started talking about apex predator and being used to uh, scare things away, um, you know, and and allowing for a more comfortable sort of, um, you know, stim meter experience. And um, I would say that, uh, you know, that reminds me of the the coyotes that we employed during the um, the last two days of the Ryder Cup in 2016. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be a good uh good type of comparison um so yeah the the dragonfly uh you know i i i don't really want to coat myself i've used a lot of uh of insect repellent in the past but if mm -hmm. i don't have to coat my skin in pesticide I, I would rather not and uh it's also a nice conversation piece so in japan what i was wearing it sometimes on my shoulder uh sometimes on my pants leg sometimes on my cap and uh, various people would come up and, and ask me about it, compliment me on it. I mean, it, it looks good. And they're very popular. They become popular. A lot of farmers will wear them, uh, typically okay. on the back of your cap to keep a horsefly yep. or something or mosquitoes from, from yep. attacking the back of your neck. Um, and, in fact, they're so popular. I was down in Kagoshima in early September in in southern Kyushu and went to a few, like uh, – home and garden stores and and inquired about purchasing more because i wanted to take back to thailand uh, where mm -hmm. there's a lot of mosquitoes and uh, they were sold out so it is wow. yeah well i you know i expected to to do this show offering insight into the bobble test and i think we may have um we may have usurp the the insight into the bobble test with the insight into this uh dragonfly because i'm i'm fascinated by this you know we we tend to have quite a few bugs here in minnesota horse flies and gnats and mosquitoes and um yeah, well, yeah i think that, i i think i so, might need to employ the dragonfly next year yeah so i heard uh yeah let's see how should i phrase this uh I've got a couple things I wanted to say. One is that I'd heard that they, uh, that people in, or people, some people in Japan told me that they'd heard that people in Canada or people in the upper Midwest, like Minnesota, uh, would, uh, would use something like this. And, and apparently that's not the case. I'd never heard of it. This is the first time I've heard of it for, for a bug insect deterrent. Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard of it in the other way. Like my wife mentioned that to me that, you know, people wear it as kind of a fashion thing or like to bring good luck or to bring good sort of karma. Um, but this is the first I've heard about it for insects, but uh, you know, there's lots of things I haven't heard about before that are going on. And yeah, um, this is, yeah, that could one, be the case. This could be another one. <laughs> yeah. This is, yeah. People are telling me it's so popular and, mm -hmm. but like, yeah, I didn't see a lot of other people wearing it, but if you do, it's like greenkeepers, um, caddies, mm -hmm. farmers, people that work outside. But yeah. you probably wouldn't yeah. find it. I well, thought it would be fun to wear it in in central Tokyo and and draw a few, yeah, good conversation <laughs> piece. And going, probably going, fewer bugs in 
That might be more like fly, like house flies in central Tokyo. I yeah. Would think. And then, so the other thing I was going to say is I, I did take it back to Thailand. I, I acquired another one during the week. And so I've got two and I brought, brought them back to Thailand for a short stay that I had in Thailand. And my wife said, well, it probably won't work on Thai mosquitoes. And I will say that I was bitten by some mosquitoes in Thailand. And the problem is like, I, I'd be wearing it on my shoulder, like on my left shoulder. Uh, and then my right ankle would get bitten by a mosquito or something. So mm. it's like, yeah, I think if you're out moving, that's like sitting at my desk, but if you're out moving yeah. around, maybe that it has that apex predator type of, uh, yeah. type of effect. So anyway, very I, I'm very interested to know if it could work in Minnesota. Yeah. Well, I will have to give it a try next year. We're kind of past bug season here, but, uh, next year it always comes again. So next year, uh, I'll, I'll give it a try. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for allowing me to uh, digress and explain a little bit about <laughs> insects and uh, apex we can get, predators. Now we can get back to the bobble test. Yeah. So, so we'll go back to the bobble test. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, basically, I'm going to go through now uh, what happens when you roll the ball because it, it, the reason why I wrote this particular blog post is because during the KBC Augusta tournament, I rolled. How many did I roll? I wrote it there. At the end of August, I scored 1,074 ball rolls during the KBC Augusta tournament. So that that's the number of bobble test scores, or or the number of rolls down a stint meter that I gave a bobble test score to, um, which. You know, you you stimp a few greens a day a few times and you do it in the morning and the afternoon and the rolls start to add up and it came to 1,074. So as I was doing that 1,074 times, I was thinking, everybody says this is subjective. Everybody says this is subjective. And I'm like, but I'm I'm getting pretty good numbers and and it's pretty consistent, right? Uh, and I'm like, and it's and it's like, there's really not so much doubt in my mind about what the score is. And I'm like, I'm going to write about this. I'm going to write in a table and just, just explain how this works um, and try to convince some more people to do it. And I said, and I want to talk with Chris about it, which the main reason why I wanted to invite you to talk about this particular blog post on the show is because I expect that you having done this thousands of times also will have come to the same scoring scale. Because mm -hmm. we're, we're basing this off the STRI scale. There's an article from the 2010 uh, Green Section Record. The title of that article is Perfectly True. It's by Richard Windows and Henry Bachelet. It is a classic article, and they describe how to do the bobble test. And in it, there's a table that gives a definition of what you can expect with a score of 10, which is no chatter or snaking perfect roll. They don't give a definition for a nine. They, they leave it up to the reader. They leave mm -hmm. it up to the person making the test to, de to, to distinguish between a 10 and an eight. So something that falls between a 10, which is no chatter or snaking, perfect roll, according to the STRI definition, uh, and eight. Eight is described as predominantly smooth, but with single isolated chatter events and minimal snaking. And then you go down to seven, it's blank. And six is chatter dominates with possibly single bobble events and some snaking. 
So th they're using words here, chatter, bauble, and snaking. And it goes all the way down to the worst score of two, which is bobbling and snaking, ball bouncing around, ball stops abruptly. Let's let's go through what these these terms mean, and because you're you're looking for three things, and I look for them in this order because this is uh, both the magnitude uh, of a problem that you have, and also the order in which they kind of happen because snaking tends to happen last. So the first mm -hmm. thing that I'm looking for is bobble. Bobble is defined as distinct vertical movement where the ball leaves the ground. If it hits a grain of sand, a big, you know, a big grain of sand or gravel that came out of a bunker, or if it hits a pitch mark, or if it hits a, a you know, one of those cauliflowers from Poa Annua or something. And, and if the ball leaves the ground, that is bobble. So the first thing I'm looking for is, is there bobble or not? If there is bobble, how many times did it happen? The second mm -hmm. thing I'm looking for is chatter. Chatter is defined as distinct vertical vibrations discernible, but ball does not leave the ground. So then I'm looking, is there chatter? And then I'm counting how many times did that did that happen? Did it, did it chatter for only one little section of the roll or did it chatter again and then roll smooth and then chatter again and then mm -hmm. roll smooth and then finally i'm looking for snaking snaking is lateral deviation from the intended path and so i'm looking for those three things and it and it it might seem like a lot to keep in your head but after after you do this 20 times 30 times it, then it's in your head and you don't forget it and it's pretty simple yep okay so it's very, it, it's very easy. It, it sounds as I'm sitting here listening to you describe it. I, I think to myself, to someone who hasn't done this, that sounds very complicated to me. This is like, this is like anything in which context is important. You know, if, if you are, uh, I, I think about it oftentimes when somebody puts a spreadsheet up on a, on a computer screen and I have no idea what I'm looking at and they know the spreadsheet inside and out and they're throwing, you know, they're looking at numbers and going to cells and moving around and I can't, catch you know i'm just trying to figure out which number they were talking about i have no idea exactly what they're trying to display on the on the spreadsheet however when you know the spreadsheet and you have the context and you work with it all the time it makes total sense and so that's the way i just interpreted what you said if if you're new to this and you don't know um and you don't have that context it sounds very complicated when you do it all the time it sounds it exact it's a perfect description of of what it's like Thank you, Chris. And you've had a couple of very good uh, analogies, or or, or uh, I think those are called analogies, like about I, I the Excel are, sheet yeah. and about the uh, the baseball yep. umpire um, that calling balls and strikes. That's very good. So it, it occurred to me as I was making those one thousand and some rolls during the KBC Augusta tournament in August. I thought, you know what? Like it is so clear in my mind what what scores i'm giving i'm like let me write it down uh just as a bit of a attempt to get more people to give a try to this uh measurement that i find very very useful so here's how it works in practice in general on on the types of putting greens that i usually see uh which are you know golf courses that have a hundred percent grass cover and, mm -hmm. and they're, they're maintained by professionals. 
it's really rare to get anything less than a six. So the scores basically is going to be six, seven, eight, nine, or 10. That the mm -hmm. bottom end of the scale, uh, which is like bobbling, snaking, and chatter throughout the roll. I mean, who's producing greens like that these days? It's like probably not a lot of people that are listening to this. Probably not a person who's going to spend the time doing the bobble test. Yeah, that's that's a very good way to put it. And, you know, I mean, and if you are, I'm not making, I mean, if that is the type of conditions that you have and you are, um, you know, watching this or listening to it, I'm not making fun of you. Um, and it's just like, it's just rare to have those kind of conditions, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I can, I can say that the only time I've ever seen a five on our greens is directly out of winter one year, just for fun, just to see, I did some stimping on the greens before we had touched the surface at all. So there was lots of sand and there was sort of debris from the winter and I did it and I, I got some fives, but that was it, you know, on a, on a green that's actually been prepared a six is the, is the lowest I've, I've ever seen. So, and we do have them on occasion because as you said, um, if the ball hits a ball, a pitch mark or mm -hmm. a grain of sand, which it does on occasion, that's a six. So once in a while we, if, I do see it. If, if that, if hitting it causes Comes it to leave the ground. The ground. Yep. So, so here's, let's go through the original definition from that perfectly true article, which I'll put a link to in the description. Well, there's a link to it in the blog post. So, um, you you can you can get that article from the blog post um so a six which is kind of the low end of what we would expect uh on on greens is chatter dominates remember that's where there's vertical deviation but we can't see that the ball leaves the ground with possibly single bobble events and some snaking so if the ball leaves the ground it's not going to get above a six be because there's just no there's no room for bobble on good greens. No golfer wants to see the ball bounce. And mm -hmm. six is like the maximum you get if there's a single bobble event. If you start bobbling more than once, then you're going to, that's where the ball leaves the ground. Now the score is going to be five or below, but it's so rare to see that, that, that I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Mm -hmm. And then there's two scores above that on the original scale. So the seven is blank. So you're allowed to give a seven, but they don't define what it is. It's just somewhere between six, which is chatter dominates with possibly single bobble events and some snaking up to eight. Eight is predominantly smooth, but with single isolated chatter events and minimal snaking. Ten is perfect roll, no chatter or snaking, obviously no bobble. Now, what, what I have been doing for a few years uh, is is doing the scale that I put on the right side of this table, which I label as the ATC scale. And I define it basically the same as STRI, but I also put a score for nine. I define what score, what happens when we give a nine, what happens when we give a seven, and I add a little bit more um, context. So on a six, I say it's either a single bauble or three or four chatter or snaking events. That's a six. That's what I give mm -hmm. a six. If it's worse than that, uh, which is almost continuous chatter and or snaking or two bobble events, it's a five. But that's that's rare. It's rare to have continuous chatter, snaking, and two bobble events. Now, for seven, seven happens. There's no bobble. There can't be a bobble with a seven, but it's 
two chatter events or two snaking events or one chatter plus one snake. That is, I see two clear deviations from a perfect rule. So it's mm-hmm. like, if, if that's what you see, the score is seven. It's, it's not like, do I give it an eight? Do I give it a seven? Do I give it a six? It's yep. when, when you see no bauble and it chatters twice, it's like, boom, there's, that's when a seven. You, when you do this all the time and you see it over and over and over again, you don't ponder the score at all. You just know it. You see it and you know it right away. Mm-hmm. It's, there's, it's unquestioned. Yep. Um, really, I think, it, and that might be something people think about is, oh, how much extra time is this going to take? It's it's zero. It's just, to me, it's automatic. The ball rolls down and I go seven, ball rolls again, eight, ball rolls again, up, oh, it jumped off the ground, six. And then I quickly add those numbers up, um, six, seven, 13, eight, 21. 21. And that's how I record it on my, on a scorecard. And then when I put it into the, my spreadsheet, it, it averages it out. Exactly. So, so you have that insight of a really easy way to do it because you can, you can keep those numbers in your head. So, or I, I keep those numbers in my head and then I write them down. So I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, seven, seven, eight, that's a 22. So I write down a 22. I roll back three balls in the other direction. It will be like eight, 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 24. So now I've got a 22. I've got a 24. And then that goes into the spreadsheet or the software and it gets divided by six and our number is going to be, uh, seven point, uh, yep. 7.66 or something like that. Yep. But, but so yeah, I, I don't I, score. I've had times where I, I, at one time I scored, I would score between a seven and an eight. Like I might say a 7.5, which I think is fine, but I've found that that's not, really necessary you know sort of the way that the it's set up as you said is yep if you know between a six and an eight is a seven and between an eight and a ten is a nine mm-hmm. and so i just give it a, a number without a decimal and then the decimal comes from the, the average exactly over 18 greens exactly and and <clears throat> if i see one that i think you know what like that was a pretty bad seven <laughs> and and then it's like, well, th- then I just watched the next one really careful. And I'm like, yep. wow, that was a really bad seven. Okay, that's yep. a six, right? So now yep. I feel comfortable that like, okay, I've given a seven, but it it was almost like worse than a seven. And then the next one was also bad. But yep. I'm like, it didn't bobble, but it was a bad seven. Okay, it's a six. Yep. So now I've just, yep. I know that between those two rolls, it's it's going to it's gonna be 6.5. Yep. Um, I do I do the same. And, and so... As you do this, you just realize that like there's a certain number that it sort of has to be, and and I think we converge on the same way of doing it. Um, eight. So so a seven for me is there's two deviations from a perfect roll that are not baubles. So it's it's uh, either two chatters or two snakings or one chatter plus one snake. Eight. Eight is almost perfect. And, and it's pretty common to see eights and nines. Eight is almost perfect, but I've clearly seen either a single chatter or single snaking event. It's, it's not something, Chris, are you getting phone calls that you need to take? I, I am, but I, I, that's my office phone, which tends to be, um, not something I need to answer usually. So I, okay, it's cool. not a concern. Cool. Well, let's, they, they are calling twice. No. 
Okay. We're, it's fine. Okay. Uh, if they call a third time, I might answer. <laughs> okay. So um, we'll back to our exciting uh, dis discussion here of, of what an eight is. An eight is almost perfect, but you clearly see a single chatter or a single snaking event, and that's common. It's, it's common even, you know, you watch on TV, you watch it, uh, you know, watch professional tournaments on TV, the ball often snakes at the end. It'll be a perfect mm -hmm. roll. And, uh, and you'll often see it snake at the end, which is, yeah. which is a, uh, lateral deflection from the intended path. Um, you, and you've done some work on this, which I think is interesting doing this before when set up for play. And then at the end of the day, and, and I would imagine as I've watched tournaments on TV, um, what I notice is that, you know, as the day goes on, there is a, you probably do go down to eights with regularity because um on putts as a golfer's putting it because they're generally putting towards the hole so as they putt towards the hole they're just encountering more foot foot activity and mm -hmm. that's going to have a negative impact on the on the ball roll yeah um, I've, I've got a blog degree i've got a blog post about that specifically um and an yep. atc double cut episode about that specifically which is uh what was the title on that one uh the title on that one was, what did I call that? One additional chatter or snaking event in every third ball roll. And that's what I measured during the KBC Augusta tournament. Mm -hmm. um, that, and you can check out that blog post or that episode uh, for what specifically I meant by that. I measured this at the Catalonia Championship also in... Uh, Spain last year, which is a European tour event last year. That was on bent grass greens and on bent grass greens. It dropped by almost like one additional chatter or snaking event per roll. So mm -hmm. it, it, if you were like at a nine in the morning, by the end of play, it would be something like an eight. And it's just mm -hmm. because the grass gets scuffed up and, and you yep. get more pitch marks. So, and you get more, mostly it's pitch marks really. Cause yep. you got, 150 160 professional golfers they hit the ball near the hole um yep. and i mean they hit the ball on the green right so i'm making those yep. measurements around the green and and it's just more likely that you're hitting things and yeah and that just happens and anyway it it it's it's pretty easy when you just see a single snatter chatter snaking event that is an eight and then nine is a score on really good greens nine is really common because it's an almost perfect roll and it's uncertain if i saw any deviation or not and you might say well that's really subjective but but the thing is you often are uncertain if you saw any deviation or not because we don't just want to give perfect scores out of like oh that's perfect that's perfect that's perfect so if you're actually watching it you're like you're like, yeah, that, that, that's not a clear chatter. And, and at the end, it's not like really snaking, but it's sort of like, did it, did it finish like exactly straight or did the ball tilt Fall sideways just a, a little, little bit? bit? Yep. And yep. well, it's, it's not 10 cause there's some question in my mind because I'm, I'm looking at it with a critical eye. So it's not a 10 because a 10, I know when I see it, there's no chatter or snaking. I'm certain that I've observed a perfect roll. There's absolutely no visible deviation from a true roll. And what you'll see when you're rolling the ball down the stint meter is not only is it obviously a perfect roll, but those balls will 
will just like be right next to each other or they'll, they'll all be e in the same spot. Right. They'll hit and, each other. Right. Typically. So, yeah. They'll hit each other. And, and, and it's not only that it rolled perfectly to get there, but they all finish in exactly the same spot. Mm -hmm. and, yep. and, and you're like, yeah, that was, then that's often like, okay, that was 10, nine, 10 or 10, 10, nine or something, but it's rare. Yeah. Now, maybe on, maybe on bent grass greens, maybe at, at your level of club, you, you get that more often, but I, I, I generally am seeing a lot of nines on really good greens with a few tens mixed in there. Um, that, the that's typically part, what I see. Yep. When we're, when we get to the point where we're, where we want to be, it will be mostly nines with the occasional 10 and on the other end, an occasional eight. But what will happen for us is we'll get to the point where our scores and I'll observe the roles and I'll, I'll be like, I'll be like, that's a nine, a nine, a nine, maybe a 10. And then, you know, at that point, I, I, I don't record it anymore. I'm always aware of it. And if I were to start to see that I go out some morning and I start to roll and I'm like, Ooh, that's a seven, a seven, an eight. And I go to the next green and I get a seven, a seven, and maybe a six. And all of a sudden I go, okay, wait a minute, something. But that doesn't typically happen. Usually what happens with us is if we open, we start the season and it rises up. And once the grass is completely supporting the roll of the ball, now it, it gets into a nine consistently every day. And then if we do something, um, airify, which we did this summer um, in August, that will go down and then we'll come back up. Would you like me to share my screen, Micah? This might be a good time to show that. Does that? Yeah. All right. So we, we got the, uh, the bobble test data up. Is that, what are we looking at here, Chris? So, so we see, see the dates across the bottom and then you see the bobble test score, the average score on the, which is identified by the blue um, dots and there's numbers. So it looks a little bit jumbled, but if it, think you get the idea and then behind it you actually see scores from previous years mm -hmm. um but pay attention to the blue with the numbers and what you'll see is the beginning of the year which is may 1st that's very early in the golf season in, in minnesota you'll see these numbers are are you know seven averages of seven there's a couple of little high sixes there and then this climbs as the grass starts to grow and it grows through the sand that we put down before the winter and it climbs up and you'll see some uh, numbers in there. It'll get up into the eights and then it regresses a little bit back to the sevens. And then about June 1st or so, it starts now we're into the you know eights consistently into the high eights. And then you get into June and now it's getting close to nine. And then really you could see this, this does take some, some time <laughs> to get to where we want it to be. It does take some time to nine. So I don't want anyone to think that nine is just an automatic um, score. You can see here it was almost um, the end of the end of June um, when we consistently were getting into the nines. Mm -hmm. And then through July, I just would observe almost all nines on the rolls. So I just sort of consider that to be a nine plus through there. But then I'm going to move this a little bit. Oh, yeah, then you did. Yeah. You, this year you did that cultivation event in early August. So yep. what happened So can there? you see, can you see that now, Micah? Yeah. Column so, w. So, yeah. So what, so what are the line, the horizontal lines? Is it, a, is it at six and then eight 
Is that what those lines are at? Um, six and then uh, six and eight. Yes, correct. And six, then eight, the very top would be 10. Okay. Yep. All right. So, so, so you, you were at, you were almost, you were nine to 10, but yep. closer to 10 all the yep. way through the end of July. And yep. then what happened? And then we aerified in, in August, we did a solid tining with, with sand. And you can see in the days immediately after that, um, we were back into the sixes. And then as the, again, as the grass grew through the sand, as those holes healed, it took a little bit of time for us to build back up towards the nine, almost, almost really half a month, you know, two, two weeks, I would say two to three weeks. Mm-hmm. I would say before we were consistently up into the nines again. So, you know, the point the point that that makes is when we do something. And now, granted, that was a more um, disruptive practice than we would typically do. Um, it's it certainly isn't a maintenance Monday type of thing. That's an actual like full on um, cult- cultivation event. But I think what we need to pay attention to, and the reason I bring this up, is that it does it does impact the surface and it impacts the surface when you're doing it with this type of, um, when you're looking at it in this way and you're doing this type of, of testing and rating, um, you, it, it impacts the surface for a good amount of time. Mm-hmm. And I've seen even a brushing event, um, even a, a small top dressing, which we've done before in the spring of the year does impact this for a certain amount of time. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, I, I think um, this is brilliant because I, I think like the advanced use of this is to say, okay, we you wouldn't have done that uh, cultivation and top dressing if you didn't think it was a necessary work. Right. But now you know how long it took to recover. You know the method yep. that you use. You knew the tine size. You know the amount of sand, and you know the way you brushed it in and everything. And you yep. know now. So here's our recovery curve exactly. And you've got that for green speed, but we're not going to talk about it. We're just talking yep. about the bobble test here. So it shows the magnitude of disruption and how long it took to recover. So if you need to do that again in your career, then you can know. Number one, you can predict how long it's going to take to recover back to this the pre-treatment level. Secondly, if you want to change something and you can see, well, did did that help me get better two days earlier or not? So yep. if you if you change or, or what if you make a bigger time, you know, a bigger hole or or put less sand or or, you know, use wetting agents every three days after you do the sand and somehow that makes it better. I, I don't know. Yep. I think like that whole, the advanced use of this bauble test is like checking before and after play or before and after, uh, you know, start of the day, end of the day, and then recovery yep. from certain events. Um, yep. I, I think that that can be so useful. It, it Like if you know that information, you're in control of what's going on and you can communicate about it and say, look, you know, that was disruptive, but it, it lasted this long. And and then mm-hmm. the next year when you're going to do it, you're going to say, you know what, we're going to do this technique and this technique, and we're going to shorten that by three days. And then you can check if you actually achieve it. So yeah, yeah, very good. Well, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I'm going to, uh, I know you've, you've shared a lot of this data with me, uh, and, uh, I, I haven't made any charts of that, but I have some code on my computer from last year where I summarize it. And I think, uh, if we do the ATC office hours uh, next mm-hmm. month, probably like we have the past couple of years, I'll try to make some charts in my 
uh, format that I think uh, don't have the numbers on it. It'll show, it'll show the exact line a little bit more clearly. Yeah. You know, it'll be it'll be fun too. This is we're well, a, a, more, less than a year away from this, but next year we have the U.S. Amateur, and the the plans are for you to to come and and spend time here during that event, and uh, you know, hopefully that'll work out, and hopefully we can we can do some work with this sort of before and after play maybe we can look at areas around the hole and you know come up with some some fun ways to sort of look at this test and and see you know what the impact of play is you know you have mm -hmm. uh during the u.s amateur you have four days of four full field play around a hole and and what will be really interesting oh man I'm, maybe this is an offline conversation but we we can do it here we have a uh group of listeners who will appreciate it is uh we will when they play the uh the qualifying round for the u.s amateur they leave the hole in the same place for two consecutive days and there's a lot of golf that takes place so it'll be interesting to maybe look at an area around the hole when it's prepared for play before any rounds are played and then at the end of the first round and then before the second round and it will be anyway mm -hmm. yeah exciting to think about yeah, Carl Scamenti asked me when I I was sharing some of the data that I'd collected during the KBC Augusta tournament in regards to the bauble test. And Carl Scamenti from Cornell University was asking me if I'd measured specifically around the hole. And I didn't exactly, but because when I'm measuring on those particular greens, the way I do it at, at the KBC Augusta tournament, I'm measuring three greens in three different locations so i end up almost always the whole location is very near one of my mm -hmm. um bobble test measuring locations mm -hmm. and i actually have some uh videos that i shot showing the rolls at the end of the day and and i need to check my archives if i shot that morning also but certainly it's going to be a a discussion point to try to exp uh Try to explain what I have observed and uh, and answer that very good question from from Carl and yeah. and yeah I'm hopefully I can make it to the U.S. Amateur next year and and make some of those kind of measurements and yeah it's 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 interesting it, it, I I think it's it's fun to know that kind of stuff mm -hmm. yeah so yeah maybe we'll play catch too you. Uh, I, I will encourage everybody sign up for Chris's uh, sub stack and, and you'll get his podcast through that also, which you can also get his podcast on Apple podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast, but uh, he's got a sub stack and uh, as your recent posts, the most recent one I've read was about your new baseball glove. Did that get broken yep. in yet? Uh, it is, it's broken in pretty well. Um, you know, a major leaguer might not want to use it in a game, but uh, it's, 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 I'm pretty happy with it. So awesome. Um, it's, it's been a fun little uh, thing. And, you know, when I, when I got this glove, I, I wondered what my wife would say about it. And she, um, she likes to give me grief about things um, that I do. And I'm, I can be kind of a dork and a, a big child sometimes, but um, anyway, she, she didn't give me too much grief about the glove. There was about 30 minutes of, you know, talk of a midlife crisis and that. And then she, uh, she seemed to settle into realizing that that's, that seems like a pretty reasonable thing. So she doesn't give me a hard time about carrying it around the house and wearing it while I watch baseball games on TV or listen on the radio. So um, <laughs> good, good. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. I, I, the only um, time she, 
the only time she has commentary is when she comes to bed and the glove is is in her laying on the bed uh-huh. in the bed on her side and then she doesn't tend to like that but you know well yeah <laughs> maybe uh i may not have my own glove but maybe next year i can borrow can i borrow one of your old ones that we you got want? lots of glo- well, are you left-handed oh no i'm not no oh, oh. uh i'll borrow so a glove I from should... somebody or we can... I should say, you know, the best thing about being left-handed as a kid was I never liked people playing with my stuff, mm-hmm. my toys or my things as I grew up. And so I think one of the great things about being left-handed is that extended to my baseball gloves. I didn't like people to mess around with them. And, you know, I was very particular about them. And so being left-handed, nobody could ever use my glove. So, um, you know, that was fortuitous. Well, that's good. Anyway, I think yeah, we can well, find so that's you. a good way. That's a good way to answer that. Yeah. So I'm... we can find you a glove, Micah. We can okay. find you a glove. Good. Good. If I'm, if I'm not busy measuring before and after bubble test right. numbers, we can. We'll have some time to play catch during the AM. I think. All right. Um, well, we have exhausted the bubble test topic. Uh, or well, we've gone through it pretty good. I guess one more thing about the bubble test that I just want to. Uh, hear what you have to say about it is like i feel like nobody's doing it um mm-hmm. at least in the u.s right like yeah do you know anybody else that's doing it um you know i i've run across a few people who have said that they're doing it i can't not, nobody in my like friendship circle here in the twin cities but um you know i was recently you can maybe see my um mm-hmm souvenir here oh yeah i was at the that looks i was familiar. at the Ryder cup in italy and um you that's know a i flag, ran into right a so for those it's listening a, a, yeah that's a flag that flew the, at the Ryder cup yep Ryder cup 2023 marco is it simone pretty 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 cool experience to be there with um Tell help me with the pronunciation, um, Chris. Is Marcus? Marco Simoni? Marco Simoni. Okay. Yeah. And um, the director of agronomy and the golf course superintendent Alejandro Reyes and and Lara Arias are are friends of mine, and and I might say friends of yours too, Micah. You spent time with them during the 2016 Ryder Cup here at Hazeltine. I, I I certainly did. We had some wonderful conversations and a lot of laughs. Took some beautiful pictures. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I was so glad to see them, uh, do the Ryder cup and, and have it be such a success. Although I was kind of rooting for the Americans, but well, to, to a, win, yeah, was, but as far as the course it, goes, it was, it was, uh, a resounding success. Well, the course was beautiful and they, and they did a wonderful job. And, you know, Lara is now the first, uh, female superintendent of a Ryder cup. And, um, you know, she's such a special individual and i'm i'm happy to to know her and have met her here at hazeltine and have gotten to be uh you know a friend of hers and was really proud of of the work that she did there that week and um it was amazing and you know it's it's interesting for me because of course as an american you know i might want to see the americans win um but also um for knowing what it's like to watch your team win at your home venue which i got to do here at hazeltine it was it's it makes it that much more fun. So for all my friends, all the Europeans that I met, and all the wonderful new friends I made that week, it was really great to be able to 
see them experience that same thing and, and watch kind of a, a victory um, by their team because it, it does make it a lot better. So, And you started that Ryder Cup uh, story with something about the we, you were transitioning from how we don't know really people in your friend group in the U.S. doing bobble test. And then- yes, sorry. Um, so, so what? What I what I did? I did run across a couple of people who who I didn't know previous who were at the Ryder Cup who came up and said that they they follow um, what I my writing and your your videos and your work, Micah, and that um, you know it is something. It seems like that's being done. Um, in very small amounts, but I think there are people who have, have been following what we've been talking about and are finding this to be a useful um, tool in in assessing their playing conditions. So, you know, I think there's a little bit of it out there. Um, and if you if you're listening to this and you think, uh, and I really would like to start doing that, or that seems like it'd be very useful, I would I would just tell you, you know, the best way to start doing it is to just start. You know, there's there's no better way than to just start. Look at the chart, maybe. Um, you know, save Micah's chart that he has on your phone, make it table, easily accessible. Table. And then and, let's call it and then, let's call the table, it table. Sorry. Yes. Yes. Uh, save, save that table on your phone and make it very accessible and, and start to do this. And I think you'll very quickly find it to be valuable. I, yeah, I agree. And if you, if you're in New Zealand and everybody does this and you think I'm an idiot for talking about it, or you think I'm, uh, we're, I or Chris and I are trying to claim some kind of ownership over this idea or something that that's not intended. Uh, if, if, if you're in, uh, you know, if you're STRI, <laughs> if you're in, in the UK and you do this all the time and, and it's just, we don't know about that because we haven't done greenkeeping yeah. in those places, but I've read articles by STRI agronomists about how they're teaching people how to do it. And that was part of their system. And I, I I know people in New Zealand also do this. So we learn from them and, you know, people like Keith McAuliffe, who I also thought he'd be a great guy to talk with. uh, I think formerly with NZSTI um, who, who've been promoting benchmarking. They call it benchmarking or, Mm -hmm. or he, he calls it benchmarking and it, it's something that he was advocating for 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And, and it would just kind of fell on deaf ears when, when I was hearing it or not deaf ears, but I hear it, but I just didn't register how it would be so important. I didn't start doing this till 2019. So, so now I bring up that uh, certainly in, in the parts of the world where I do a lot of work, which is a lot of places, <laughs> I I don't find a lot of people doing this. And I know you do it, but but there's not a lot of people doing it, uh, as far as I know. And I I would just say, hey, uh, this is something that I think is can is potentially really quite useful. Yeah. And when it comes to readjusting the work and trying to optimize. I would almost go as far as to say that this is essential because mm-hmm. otherwise you run the risk of doing things. Like I was at a golf course yesterday that has Bermuda grass greens near Tokyo. They've been top dressed one time this year. It is, we're recording this. It is already past the middle of October. Those greens were top dressed in the spring once. Who's managing Bermuda grass greens 
and top dressing once in six months. There's, there's not it a lot. It doesn't seem like that's common. Right. Those greens were really quite good. The, we rolled some balls and I looked at it. I, I would give those an eight on the bobble test. This is mm-hmm. a course that they uh, do about 70,000 rounds a year. That is a pretty busy golf course. They mm-hmm. yesterday they had sixty groups, um, and and this the greenkeeper told me that it, it wasn't so busy that day because normally they would have seventy. So, mm-hmm. um, you know it's a, it's a busy golf course and the ball roll is quite good. Were they a little bit soft underfoot? Uh, yeah, but are are they too soft for that kind of course? No, and uh, is uh. Is, is that going to be fine going into the winter when the grass is going to be dormant in that part of the world and, and that, that's going to get beaten down? Um, you know, I, I think it's fine to be like that. So, um, mm-hmm. so what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that it astounds me that those kind of conditions can be produced and you can document that it's okay by measuring the bobble test, by measuring the green speed, by tracking the firmness. And if things are going wrong, then these type of measurements will tell you that it's going wrong and tell you that you need to intervene and tell you that it's not working what you're doing. You need to vertical more often. You need to top dress more often and so on. And, and the whole thing about calibrating how much to do and how often to do it can only be done in the context of what are you trying to produce? And then are you achieving it or not? So I wrote about it in the blog post. You and I have talked about this before. The whole idea is find the standard that you're trying to produce at your facility, which is that's going to be different every, every place in the world, but it's going to be some certain combination that may even change seasonally of green speed, bobble test minimum and firmness level. And then count the number of days in the year during which you achieve this. And I've also recommended if you don't want to do it every day, which I think is perfectly fine, I recommend to people just start off by measuring this once a week and then multiply that times seven. So you just assume mm-hmm. that the that you make a representative measurement once a week. So you can get that's how you get started is just do this once a week and do it for a year. So now if you've got a 30 week season, you've now got 30 measurements. You can, that's 210 days. And, uh, you know, if, if you've got a 52 week season, that's 365 days. Cause you, you just multiply it by seven and then count the number of days that you reached your target. And then the right. next year you try to try to do better. Right. Yep. I to- totally agree. I mean, it, again, it's, you know, we, we talk about it a lot and we have talked about it a lot and some people might start to consider it preaching or something of that nature, but, but it's, it's very valuable. And it, it, you know, our, my goal is to, again, have the best conditions possible. Um, and you know, for as many days as possible. And, and, and this is helping us to do that. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I feel like we have to evangelize it a little bit because if, Mm -hmm. if, if if we don't evangelize it and don't do some kind of promotion of it or talk about it again and again somehow it just it people don't do it and yeah, it goes because, away. 
because it it seems to be so valuable, that's why we keep talking about it, and I keep encouraging people to do useful things and and to avoid doing things that are not useful. And so when I see things mm-hmm. done on a calendar schedule, <laughs> and 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 it's not, and then people can't tell me what the results that are being produced. I'm like, okay, well that's how I used to do things when I was a greenkeeper. Mm-hmm. That's not what I recommend now. And and when I do consulting work, I don't want to give a calendar schedule. I, I want to teach people how to employ this system so that they can figure out what's going to be optimal for their facility. So we'll uh, let's have another long conversation about this I, uh, when we do an ATC office hours at the at the end of the year where we'll talk about uh, a lot of the organic matter stuff, sand top, you know, sand stuff. And we don't even have these yep. test results yet. So we'll see uh, how those come out. Uh, that will be interesting. And, and that one may be in a live stream and we may have a chat so we can answer questions. So hopefully yep. we'll be able to get that done in the next month or so. Um, and then, yeah, I, if you fire up your podcast again, uh, for season two, I would be happy to be a guest on that too. And we, we can talk about something other than the bobble test. I'm sure like, uh, that would be great. I'm, to... I'm, I'm sort of, uh, <laughs> I'm doing, um, some very mild planning for my season two and thinking about who might, who my guest might be. And, and you might be a good, uh, a good person to start that season, season three, uh, season three off soon. Is it season, so. season three? Oh, I'm sorry. Two season two. What I was, I, I don't know what I was thinking about. So season two, season two. Awesome. Well, yeah. Chris, thank you. Is there anything else that, that we've missed before we I, say goodbye? I don't think so. I think um, we've we've covered the bobble test well. We've we've added some humor. We talked about uh, dry, wearing dragonflies for potential insect uh, repellent, mm-hmm. and um, you know we've covered a couple other topics in the middle. So I think it will be. I hope people will listen. Yeah, and and I would be especially interested to have some feedback because I have the feeling like nobody's doing this, and mm-hmm. then I've I've been recommending it for a while, and you're actually doing it. So mm-hmm. maybe that gives some legitimacy to it. I would just yeah. like like to have some feedback from people of like, I mean, if you're saying it's subjective and it's too subjective and the number won't mean anything to you, but you haven't tried it yet, I would just encourage you to try it. Roll the ball enough times and you can see there's only a limited number of things that can happen to the ball. And each of those things that happen cause it to have a certain score. So yeah. it, yes, it's subjective, but it's, it's a useful subjective. It's the same thing that golfers are seeing. So I, I would encourage people to do it. If, if you want to, if you want to like try to optimize, try to keep getting better and, and you want to use this kind of system, there's a lot of ways you can try to get better and, and try to optimize that aren't this way, but this is the way that I like to do it. So I would encourage people to do it and give some feedback if, if you just, if, if you just are still don't see a utility in it, uh, or, or you find it doesn't, doesn't work. Uh, I would be interested to hear that too. Cause I hate to recommend things that it's like, it makes me worried when I'm recommending and evangelizing things that nobody's doing that I'm sort of like, am I the one that that's barking up the wrong tree here? <laughs> so yeah, send some feedback. Please. Well, I think, I think we go, I, I know, um, Doug, sold that i've heard him say this about clipping volume and and you've said it about things too and he he has said i've I've yet to find the person who started doing it that has decided that decided it wasn't worth it and stopped so i think this is another example of that that type of 
information that can be collected. I think once you start doing it, you'll find it valuable enough that you will keep doing it. Well, that is a great way for us to end. So thank you, Chris, for joining. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, I will say goodbye for ATC from Tochigi. I am Micah Woods. Bye-bye.